My name is Josh Hirsch. I'm one of the associate editors here at the JNIS. I'd like to thank Rob Tarr and the entire editorial team for allowing us to do this podcast. Probably the hottest topic in neurointervention today is the endovascular treatment of large vessel stroke. And I have no doubt that for reasons everybody listening to this podcast knows that this topic is only going to become more important and more popular in terms of articles, submissions, and things we're thinking and talking about over the next year. Another topic that our group has been interested in for a long time in terms of using JNIS as a medium to discuss important topics in neurointerventional are operations management. Indeed, in the last few years, we've published several papers on using the lean management system in neurointerventional radiology. I'm joined by Dr. Brijesh Mehta. Brijesh is the Director of Stroke and Neurocritical Care at the Memorial Healthcare System in South Florida. He's joined that practice in the past year as director, but of course before that I knew him well because he trained at MGH in neurology, then in stroke, then in neurocritical care, and then with us for neurointerventional services. It's actually quite ironic when I look at his CV, it feels like he should have been here for a decade or two given the amount of different uh, uh, programs he worked on here while he was at MGH. Indeed, it was wonderful spending time with Prajesh, who's not only a super talented endovascular neurologist, but a person that is a kindred spirit interested in operational efficiencies and operations improvement. In fact, I would say that uh, one of his lasting marks and legacies at our own program is that he was so interested in process improvement that he brought that expertise to bear in our ischemic stroke patients. So with that, I'm going to introduce Prajesh, but I will say that he deserves congratulations for being recently named one of our two new social media editors here at the JNIS. So with that, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Prajesh Mehta. Thank you very much, Dr. Hirsch. Uh, appreciate the opportunity to uh, participate in this podcast and appreciate the kind words. You know, acute stroke is truly an exciting field and um, glad to be involved in uh, some of the ongoing research, uh, particularly for process improvement, to see how we can uh, obtain even better clinical outcomes. So now we have better devices, much better imaging selection. Are the processes around treating stroke keeping pace with with those types of developments? If you look at the experience and, you know, some of the challenges and successes that neurologists have encountered and, you know, the successes they've achieved with IV thrombolysis, that really helps us determine, uh, you know, what type of uh, improvements we can make with endovascular stroke treatment. And really it goes back to importance of time to treatment. If you look at IV thrombolysis, the number needed to treat from symptom onset for an acute ischemic stroke patient to have a good outcome, you know, 90 minutes, the number needed to treat is only three patients. But if you go to up to three to four and a half hours after symptom onset, the number needed to treat goes up to 14 patients. And then the interventional management of stroke trial we found that, you know, the probability of a good clinical outcome in patients who have a large vessel occlusion uh, is reduced by more than a third 
uh, you know, as uh, each minute, each hour lapses, and compared to patients whose vessels are opened up, say, at the 200-minute mark versus the 400-minute mark, the likelihood of a good clinical outcome is night and day. And so, you know, really that's sort of the springboard for why process improvement is critical for endovascular stroke treatment. It's such a multidisciplinary field. There's so many moving parts uh, that we really have to get everything right, every part of the process right, in order to achieve uh, potentially a good clinical outcome. And that means moving as rapidly as possible, but without compromising patient safety. And we saw the importance of time-to-treatment as further uh, reinforced by the you know, recently failed uh, endovascular stroke trials back in 2013, published in the England Journal of Medicine, uh, MR rescue synthesis and IMS3 did not support the use of endovascular stroke treatment compared to best medical therapy, which at the time was IVTPA. And so when we did uh, the post hoc analysis for many of those trials, we found that one of the major drawbacks and subsequent criticisms was the prolonged time to reperfusion. And especially in IMS3, the interval from imaging to coin puncture was up to two hours. And, you know, that's really not a sort of a, a tenable goal when you try to achieve good clinical outcomes but have a two-hour delay from just acquiring a picture, confirming a stroke and a vessel occlusion to actually opening up the blood vessel. So we all ask ourselves after these negative trials and, you know, subsequently potentially very, uh, you know, uh, significant negative impact on the field is how can we achieve uh, you know, better processes of care and, you know, really learn from cardiology field as well, you know, with their established target times for door to balloon being 90 minutes, but if they have arrived, you know, directly to a STEMI center, it's actually less than 60 minutes and recognizing that, you know, cardiology and neurology are, you know, starkly different fields and have different clinical evaluations. We don't just rely on an EKG to perform our evaluations, say go or no go for the vascular treatment, but what are the baseline processes of care and systems level changes that cardiology has been able to optimize from door to balloon that we can adapt and implement? Well, maybe even a little before that, Prajesh, within the neurology and stroke world, there's been extensive effort around process improvement and giving intravenous thrombolysis, were there lessons we could learn from from those efforts? Absolutely. And, you know, uh, a lot of the research that's going on for endovascular stroke field, it's basically, you know, uh, uh, kind of um, uh, following in the footsteps of the successes of IV thrombolysis. And particularly, you know, over the past decade, you know, TPA, as you know, has been around since 1995 when it was approved by the FDA. But when the prospective research, you know, get with the guidelines and uh, the work uh, by the American Stroke Association found that despite national guidelines uh, requesting, recommending that TPA be given within the first 60 minutes of arrival to the ER at a primary stroke center, uh, i.e. that's termed the golden hour because that has the biggest implications on clinical outcome, the Stroke Association found that uh, only a third or less of the patients potentially eligible for TPA uh, were getting the drug within 60 minutes. And that served 
as the you know, basis for the ASA Target Stroke Initiative that was launched a few years ago, and subsequently the data just you know coming out very promising this past year in JAMA and the Stroke Journal, uh, you know, recognizing the importance of process improvement, and particularly you know they identified some key areas uh, in for to expedite delivery of IVTPA, that being you know on arrival to the ER, what can we do to uh, optimize evaluation by the ER physician by having them uh, perhaps wait at the ambulance bay, bypass the ER bay altogether, and take that patient straight to CT scan if they uh, you know, appear to have uh, stroke-like deficits and syndromes and uh, they're within a time window for IV thrombolysis and doing a rapid CT interpretation uh, and then the question of, you know, whether we should wait for labs before uh, administering TPA for potentially eligible patients. And the ASA Target Stroke Initiative uh, outlined when to get labs and when perhaps it might be safe to defer labs because labs, as you know, even stat labs can take upwards of 25 to 40 minutes. And that causes significant delay and, you know, essentially the goal of Getting PPA within 60 minutes is uh, unobtainable uh, in that context, and so they uh, then did uh, after implementation of the ASA Target Stroke Initiative over the last couple of years. Uh, Dr. Schwam and uh, Greg Bonner and others uh, published their findings in JAMA. So, what was the uh, field like in terms of time to treatment before implementation of these changes, and what does the landscape look like now? And it's really compelling data. Uh, the time to treatment with uh, IDTPA was reduced significantly. Uh, previously, only 26% of eligible patients, and it's a cohort of, you know, uh, 27,000 patients nationally. Only 27% of patients received IDTPA within the recommended, you know, less than 60 minutes, the golden hour. Whereas after implementing some of these ASA target stroke initiatives. Uh, up to 41% received TPA within 60 minutes. And that had a real impact on clinical outcome, you know, patients going home, patients being functionally independent, as well as minimizing the risk for symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage. And so, you know, these are the strategies that, you know, we recognize uh, have worked and are crucial to obtaining good outcomes. And the question is, you know, many of these uh, patients who are eligible for IVTPA and sometimes may not be eligible for IVTPA due to potential bleeding risk factors, they may still need intravascular treatment because TPA, as we know, can uh, only open up a small percentage of vessels that have uh, a large clot burden, specifically in the ICA, the rate of recan with IVTPA is, you know, in the uh, low double digits, you know, 10, 12%. And the MCA is only a quarter of, uh, you know, percent of patients uh, may benefit. So what happens to the rest of these patients? And, you know, the process really falls apart after, uh, you know, patients receive TPA, even at comprehensive stroke centers. Uh, there's not a clear uh, set protocol at most hospitals that, you know, allow teams to move quickly, mobilize the anesthesia teams, the interventional teams, you know, obtain consent from the family. So a lot of these things uh, are done sequentially, and that really prolongs uh, time to reperfusion. That's a perfect segue for Josh. I think it, 
it's clear that there are lessons that can be learned from our stroke neurology colleagues and from the world of interventional cardiology. Let's step back a little in time to a very important paper, a novel paper you published back in JNIS in 2013 that sets the stage for what the world of NI was like in terms of our approach towards endovascular from an operations perspective. So maybe uh, if you could comment on that survey paper, what you did, uh, your methodology, and what you found. Right, absolutely. So, you know, the neurointerventional survey paper is, was in many ways, uh, you know, held in our group as a landmark paper in, uh, you know, endovascular stroke process improvement. We all knew, and this was the impetus for doing a study like this, is that there's significant variability in delivery of stroke care. And anecdotally, we hear this, you know, uh, in terms of what the processes of care are like in our surrounding hospitals uh, locally as well as nationally and not really having uh, a set protocols and guidelines in place. Uh, and particularly, this is due to the absence of guidelines from a national level and a society level. And so what we really wanted to do was quantify what we felt were areas of you know fragmentation uh, and significant variability so that that could lead to specific focus changes in the delivery of stroke care for patients eligible for endovascular treatment. And so we basically did an internet-based survey where we asked uh, neurointerventionalists that belong to either the Society of Neurointerventional Surgery or the Vascular Interventional Neurologist to get feedback via uh, survey questions as to what their practice setting is like, their backgrounds as the operators, are they neurologists, radiologists, neurosurgeons, their operational protocols within their institutions, and uh, perhaps some insight into quality, safety, as well as decision-making for when they uh, determine a patient may be likely to benefit from an invasive treatment versus unlikely to benefit. And so we really had a pretty good response rate, uh, nearly 50%, of the uh, individuals to whom the survey went out to uh, responded. And, um, you know, what we learned is that there is uh, indeed a significant variability in, uh, you know, across all aspects of care, as I just mentioned. And, um, you know, uh, in in terms of when the neurointerventional team should be activated, I think, you know, sort of the most upstream part of the process is where we noted that really there's no one right answer or strategy that's established at this time. And that uh, may be the area that needs the most work in terms of reducing overall time to treatment. So when we asked neurointerventionalists that, you know, when there is an acute stroke, at what phase of evaluation do they hear about the patient so they can uh, reliably uh, activate the cath lab uh, with actionable information? Some said immediately after arrival of the patient to the ER, Others said only after a neurological evaluation, but before imaging, or after parenchymal imaging, but before vessel imaging is obtained, or only after vessel imaging confirmed a large vessel occlusion. And majority of uh, individuals, surprisingly, uh, said that it's usually at the discretion of the ER or the acute stroke team. There was really no established mechanism. And so, you know, this variability... Uh, can cause potential delays uh, after imaging is obtained 
and then you know activating the cath lab may take up to 30 minutes to an hour, especially at nighttime. And so these are the areas that we identified may need a lot of work in the future and uh, is ripe for disruption. Uh, the other question among the many that we asked was, you know, uh, the the area of tracking time to treatment because, you know, at the end of the day, process improvement is only helpful if we're measuring our intervals and tracking the individual metrics. And without doing that, we really don't know which areas actually need further optimization. And so when we asked the question to the uh, surveyors, uh, to the responders that, you know, who tracks the time intervals and do you even track them and what do you do with that information? Uh, 109 uh, respondents out of the 140 or so that participated uh, said that, yes, we do track time intervals, but uh, most did not do anything with that information in terms of our actual uh, ingrained QA process um, uh, as we were doing at Mass General. And so uh, that's another area where we can say, you know, uh, define which uh, intervals are important for endovascular stroke treatment and uh, be able to measure them and interpret the data and then make some uh, effective changes uh, in the bottlenecks of the process. That, that, that's, a, that's a great answer, Rajesh. And I would say, not surprisingly, MGH suffered uh, from some of the very problems that were uh, uncovered by the survey. I would uh, like to pivot then to our work at MGH, but not get lost in the particulars of our protocol. So generally speaking, Brajesh, um, uh, I'd, I'd like you to focus on the areas where we sought to apply process improvement and whether or not we achieved measurable results, and if so, if you could speak to those results. Definitely. So. You know, this being uh, sort of my evolving interest as I was uh, when I was a neurointerventional fellow at Mass General, I had firsthand knowledge of how long it was taking our stroke patients to go from ER to imaging to cath lab for patients who had a confirmed large vessel occlusion or, uh, you know, and be able to uh, benefit from endovascular treatment. But, you know, again, it was anecdotal experience. And so I went back and looked at our uh, sort of very comprehensive database to determine where the delays were actually occurring. And what we found uh, in analysis from 2007 to 2010 in sort of, you know, what I would describe as the pre-change cohort is that the main area where there was significant delay was after obtaining the imaging and going to the angio suite. And so... And the old process, i.e., the one where there was not an early and parallel activation of the neurointerventional team, um, the time it took for patients to go to the cath lab after completion of CT and or MRI was over an hour, and that was sort of the median time frame. And um, uh, we said, you know, this is an area where we can make the biggest impact uh, because all the other time intervals that I looked at, you know, door to CT. Uh, or door to MRI, and then from imaging to angiosuite, and then from angiosuite to coin puncture to reperfusion, there was not uh, a lot of variability. But the area that, you know, showed the biggest discrepancy was picture to suite and, uh, you know, overall picture to puncture interval. 
and so sought to determine what exactly was going on in that phase and what we could do to really uh, reduce that time as much as possible to minimize patient waiting in the ER. And this is actually, you know, uh, sort of as a side topic, a big incentive for ER physicians to participate in process improvement for stroke as well because most ERs in the country, as we know, are very crowded and, you know, what we can achieve from a process improvement standpoint for stroke uh, can really help ERs be compressed as much as possible by reducing the wait time from imaging to suite for acute stroke patients. So we looked at some of the existing uh, data in the literature in terms of what is our basically proxy, uh, if you will, uh, instead of having an EKG for STEMI to make a decision, go, no, go, what data can we use, i.e. in the pre-hospital phase versus immediately on arrival to the hospital if we have uh, pre-hospital notification by EMS to activate our teams as early as possible uh, while minimizing a false positive rate uh, for activation of the cath lab. And so what we looked at was potentially clinical deficits. Uh, if the patient had a classic stroke syndrome, a high NIH stroke scale, uh, then they were more likely to have a large vessel occlusion. Similarly, for a pre-hospital setting, you know, if they have a high LA motor score, then uh, it's likely that, you know, if it's above four or five, those individuals are very likely to have a large vessel occlusion. And so perhaps in those settings, uh, we could uh, at least alert our cath lab team, starting with if you're in an academic institution, the neurointerventional fellow or the stroke fellow, and having them in constant communication. And as soon as patients arrive, at least the teams are on uh, alert, they have the patient on their radar, and they can move quickly to identify whether the patient may be eligible for endovascular treatment. And by doing this, what we uh, achieved was really a significant reduction in our picture to sweep arrival time. We went from above an hour uh, in terms of median time before implementation of this early and parallel activation system to less than 30 minutes. And um, that, you know, really had uh, a significant impact on uh, our ability to deliver the the care that was necessary as ra rapidly as possible while minimizing uh, complications. So we also noted a uh, significant difference in, you know, uh, door to treatment and uh, specifically picture to arrival to suite in work hours compared to after hours. So we all know that you know, there's a, a daytime-nighttime effect for STEMIs in terms of time to treatment, and that's been well-described for stroke patients as well, uh, you know, in the IDTPA literature. And we wanted to examine whether that held true for endovascular stroke treatment, and it absolutely does. Uh, you know, during work hours, our uh, median door to angio suite time interval, uh, we lowered it by 40 eight minutes overall, but during work hours, it was 70 minutes, and after hours, it was still slightly high. It was 96 minutes. And so, you know, that's a result of the teams being at home. We're not in-house 24-7, only the stroke or the neurointerventional fellow is at an academic institution. And so, you know, any additional information that can be obtained either from EMS or on arrival to the ER uh, we can really use that 
to reduce our time, especially at night, because that seems to be one of the uh, biggest bottlenecks in the process. Overall, what we found is, uh, you know, while we were activating uh, our teams sooner, we were still able to minimize sort of the false positive rate based on clinical suspicion for a large vessel occlusion. Uh, so, uh, you know, for example, if a patient had an NA stroke scale greater than 10, meaning a high likelihood that they would have an intracranial occlusion, the CTA demonstrating that and confirming our suspicion was correct over three-fourths of the time. And uh, therefore, at least we felt that we were not overutilizing our resources and mobilizing our teams too quickly or too early in the process. And, you know, I think ultimately we have to look at this from a global standpoint. If you look at the number of healthcare dollars spent on acute stroke patients uh, uh, nationally, uh, you know, every single year, it's in the billions of dollars. And whatever we can do to reduce our times to treatment to demonstrate better outcomes, it really pays dividends in the long run. And so when you look at resource utilization within the hospital, and specifically, you know, the question of should we bring our teams in, should we pay them overtime, that is the amount uh, in terms of dollar amount uh, pales in comparison to the overall healthcare costs that we spend as an industry taking care of these patients in a nursing home if they do not have good outcomes. And so I think that's really the convincing area for most hospitals uh, administrations, chief financial officers, to have them on board for doing this type of granular process improvement. Well, terrific, Prajash. That was really quite a comprehensive answer, and I can say the difference your efforts made as part of the broader uh, team, which includes, as you said, a, a multidisciplinary panoply of people, are impactful till today and into our future because I do think those process improvement steps were critical. I think um, this is one of those rare times where because you were a fellow who had such a, a strong interest and now have gone on to direct uh, center down in South Florida, you might have had the opportunity to do this experiment again. And I'm curious if you've taken these process improvement lessons learned and applied them in your current environment. Absolutely, we have uh, you know made some significant strides uh, at Momona Healthcare System here in South Florida, especially from the lessons learned at Mass General. You know, when I first got here, uh, while our center here is a primary and a comprehensive stroke center for the delivery of neurointerventional care 24/7, with availability of neurosurgeons around the clock, uh, what I immediately noticed was the absence or, you know, lack of adoption of uh, the overall ASA target stroke initiative guidelines and recommendations that, you know, as I went over, have been found to be so impactful for reducing door-to-needle time for IVTPA. So that was my initial goal and challenge was to implement every single one of the ASA target stroke process changes um, because I knew overall that if we did that, uh, it would have downstream effects for rapid delivery of endovascular treatment as well. And then secondly, we worked closely with our Cardiovascular Institute uh, at Memorial to optimize the cath lab process and, you know, focusing on every uh, minutiae within the process, you know, arrival into the cath lab, how quickly can we puncture the groin, 
Do we need a Foley? Do we need an arterial line? What's the sedation modality that we uh, intend to use? And protocolizing every aspect of the process as much as possible such that uh, there's minimal variation regardless of which stroke teams are on any given day. So, for example, uh, you know, before I joined, uh, I looked uh, you know, retrospectively at uh, all the acute strokes that had been performed over the past year, uh, you know, had gone to the cath lab, and uh, the number was you know, uh, about 45 patients or so, and they were uh, you know, very much similar to MGH before we made the process improvement doing sequential activation of the neurointerventional teams, and the door to cath lab times were you know, 160 minutes uh, on average, and uh, the median was not too far off from that. And so that uh, was a uh, big opportunity for me to see what changes we could make by implementing the ASA target stroke guidelines as well as optimizing uh, the mobilization of our cath lab teams early in parallel process. And so just having done a recent analysis, we've now done... Uh, close to 40 strokes in the last three months since I joined. And during that time, uh, our door-to-cath lab times have now been uh, reduced by almost a third. So we're down to about an hour uh, time interval from door-to-cath lab. And so it's really exciting uh, to see that, and we've certainly seen improved outcomes because of that while uh, keeping complication rates uh, at a minimum. And, um, you know, I think uh, there's a lot of promise uh, because of some of these key process changes that we can now uh, implement on a national level. Uh, And, you know, having done the work at Mass General and being able to replicate those same changes uh, in a similar-sized healthcare system here in South Florida, it uh, is convincing to me that this is the type of work that's needed elsewhere in the country where uh, systems of care are not fully optimized, uh, even at a comprehensive stroke center. So, uh, Rajesh, I think it's definitely fair to say that South Florida will never be the same. And I just want to confirm that uh, you said 40 uh, intraarterial thrombolysis cases in the last three months. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, uh, the way we were able to increase the volume is not necessarily, you know, uh, mainly from direct marketing or, uh, you know, putting billboards up on the highway. You know, everyone in the area knew that Memorial was a comprehensive stroke center, but there were lots of areas that, you know, we could optimize further so that strokes are recognized in a timely fashion. And so that meant, you know, going out and giving, uh, doing outreach talks to EMS agencies in the area so that they're up to speed on the latest data for importance of EMS pre-hospital notification and uh, allowing EMS to go to the nearest comprehensive stroke center, as well as using the EMS information to implement early activation of our cath lab teams. So before I joined, it was evident that EMS was either bypassing Memorial altogether and going to other hospitals in the region because of the fact that our in-hospital processes were not as streamlined as they could have been, and pre-hospital notification was not routinely used, and therefore patients arrived, and then there was sequential activation of neurologists and then neurointerventional, and many times by the time neurointerventional teams became involved, the patient was already out of the time window for IVTPA and or intravascular treatment. 
And so, you know, we really worked on streamlining our in-hospital processes of care based on previous successes we obtained at Mass General to see if we could have an imaging algorithm that could allow us to do advanced imaging more rapidly to identify patients that are likely to benefit versus unlikely to benefit and uh, have a consensus decision-making process between neurologists and neurointerventional that can be done rapidly so that we minimize the time from picture to puncture. I mean, that's an amazing uh, growth and number of strokes treated in three months. And with the uh, data that is emerging, I can only imagine what it's uh, going to be like one year from now. So I really uh, congratulate you, and I'm glad we caught you for this uh, half hour of this podcast because you may never actually be able to leave the cath lab again. I guess in closing, Rajesh, you are obviously excited about stroke. You're obviously excited about uh, quality improvement. I think that this particular exercise, what we've seen in ischemic stroke, is actually emblematic of what can happen across our space where we take operational efficiencies and improve outcomes by instituting them. I guess my question would therefore be, what are future directions for quality uh, improvement uh, research and uh, clinical practice in endovascular stroke? There's a lot of exciting different initiatives that uh, we could take on and accomplish for further optimizing uh, our processes and ultimately improving clinical outcomes. So, you know, first and foremost, while I mentioned that, you know, the three negative new journal trials from last year, we have more exciting data that came out more recently and, uh, you know, specifically the completion of uh, MR Clean, that endovascular randomized uh, control trial in the Netherlands comparing uh, intraarterial therapy to best medical therapy, which at to date remains IVTPA. And uh, that trial was overwhelmingly positive in support of endovascular stroke treatment by a significant margin, you know, especially in the controversial area of octogenarians and whether we should be treating them or not, it was, uh, you know, positive with an odds ratio of three to one in support of endovascular treatment. So now the question is, you know, what can we use with this knowledge that, yes, indeed, endovascular treatment works, it's effective, but uh, does it at a broader scale when it's implemented, because there will no doubt be a significant growth in comprehensive stroke centers now that this data is going to be emerging, is uh, how can we demonstra- demonstrate good outcomes on a uh, on the national stage? And, you know, that has uh, implications as well from insurance companies because uh, reimbursement is very much dependent on showing good outcomes from these types of treatments. And traditionally, insurance companies until some of this data came out recently, have been leery of uh, reimbursing uh, endovascular stroke treatment. And my hope is that with ongoing process improvement, quality improvement efforts at comprehensive stroke centers around the country, that we can further uh, demonstrate better outcomes. And one way to do this is through prospective registries. Uh, One example is the Stratus registry, uh, which was uh, launched by Covidian Neurovascular recently. And Memorial Healthcare is participating in that, and the goal is to have a thousand patients enrolled over the next year or so, and really have post-marketing real-life data in terms of does this treatment work, 
at hospitals that have optimized their uh, processes of care. And uh, we're really excited to participate in that and, you know, additional areas that, you know, are uh, sort of ripe for analysis and uh, disruption is the pre-hospital care. Uh, you know, currently EMS uses uh, MedCom to relay the information in terms of there's a stroke alert in route, but I think there's much more information that we can obtain from EMS in terms of actionable changes to in-hospital processes of care. That includes what is the lasting well time that they can relay to us, what are the stroke deficits on the Cincinnati Stroke Scale or the LA Motor Score, because really those are the, uh, that's the type of information we need to activate our cath lab earlier and uh, be able to treat these patients as soon as they arrive after imaging. And uh, you know, there are some innovative technologies that are being implemented and studied in the pre-hospital setting, such as uh, smartphone apps that can quickly relay this type of notification through push uh, notification processes, as well as even doing a CT inside the ambulance. For example, Houston Stroke Network is studying that. Uh, you know, areas of South Carolina are analyzing this, and um, you know, Europe has already, you know, some parts of Europe have already studied this and found it to be highly effective in reducing door to needle time, and undoubtedly that will also have significant impact on reducing door to cath lab times, uh, because you know these patients it's not a mutually exclusive uh, you know type of care delivery, and so I think the future is bright for vascular stroke treatment and especially the new frontier being uh, processes of care and optimizing them. Actually, I think that was a really eloquent way of stating that the opportunities are going to exist in many different directions to pursue further efforts at process improvement. And I think a critical element of your work and your research and others' uh, research throughout the ischemic stroke field, and as you said earlier, interventional cardiology, suggests that these process improvements are not just events unto themselves. They're really actually opportunities to enhance care with measurable, predictable improvements in outcomes on the basis of making these efforts. Uh, with that, I would say this truly has been a pleasure for me. I'm delighted to have been able to do this podcast with uh, Dr. Brijesh Mehta, the Director of Stroke and neurocritical care and memorial healthcare system. It does seem very fortunate that we were indeed able to get this time together without him actually having to go do another stroke. So with that, I say thank you and goodbye. Thank you very much, Dr. Lynch.